Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. This week, I'm joined by the co-founder and CEO of Skiff, Andrew Millich. He's gone from building software for autonomous vehicles and SpaceX to launching a Web3 native collaboration platform, which is built from the ground up to offer end-to-end privacy. On the show, Andrew and I discuss how Skiff is reinventing the Google Docs and email workspace with a focus on user privacy and data protection. We chat about the challenges and opportunities for building privacy-first products and how this has led to a natural affinity to the crypto ecosystem. Skiff now incorporates popular projects like the Interplanetary File System, or IPFS, ENS domains, and wallet-based authentication. Hey, and after the show, don't forget to head to the show notes and grab a copy of our mid-year crypto crime report. It includes all the latest stats and trends for the first six months of 2022. We're having a conversation I've been excited for for a while. I'm talking with the CEO and co-founder of Skiff, Andrew Millich. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. I really appreciate being here. Andrew, I'm super excited today to dive into a bunch of topics related to the the evolution of Web3, the concept of privacy on the internet, uh, certainly the products that you're building at Skiff, which I think is something everybody should be taking a look at. But before we get into all of that, I've got to get your origin story. I did a little stalking on LinkedIn. It looks like earlier in your career, you were building software that ended up getting launched into space with SpaceX. Tell me how you go from there to founding skiff so i've been writing software my whole life um, i started with first robotics and little projects microcontrollers all that kind of stuff more and more i think the part of software that i find really enjoyable and i'm sure all of your colleagues do as well is just writing software that helps keep people safe and work in some of the most extreme environments so autonomous vehicles operating systems things that go in space all that kind of stuff and so i would work on some of this myself little remote control planes and, you know, my own little operating systems. And then eventually got to work on some real autonomous vehicles that are still getting worked on out in the world and on the Dragon 2 at SpaceX. And so kind of this gravitation towards human safety and security and ultimate reliability, I think, also made privacy and all the things we do today at Skiff really interesting. But Ian, hopefully that story makes sense and probably draws people to all the security stuff. It actually is a very natural evolution, one that I didn't pick up on looking at your uh, your LinkedIn profile. So thanks for tying it all together for me. You know, one of the reasons I've been so excited about Skiff and kind of following your product development from the early alpha days is I've got the feeling that you may be the first really practical application in the Web3 universe that doesn't depend on tokenomics to attract users. Like there's an inbuilt natural utility there. It solves a real problem, addresses some real challenges of of getting things done on today's modern internet. Maybe for the listeners that aren't familiar with the company, like give us the, you know, 90 second, two minute version of what is what does Skiff do? Yeah, I love this question. And I think hopefully it will change some of the ways people who are listening think about Web3. So Skiff to start off is a private end-to-end encrypted and what we call Web3 native collaboration workspace. So you can send emails that are all private and end-to-end encrypted. You can upload and share files. And you can also do all the things you'd like to do on a Google Docs or Wiki or collaborative note-taking product as well. And so basically, I'd imagine rebuilding this consumer stack of software for communicating and for collaborating, but to be more private, to be totally end-to-end encrypted, so users are the only people who have access to their data, and then to integrate with an existing crypto identity that users have. In some ways, what I find really interesting is our product is supposed to be super intuitive and familiar, because it's something that people use every day and hopefully 
you know, multiple times or every hour, even like an email product you check constantly. But I think on the reverse side, the architecture and how we see it built in this Web3 manner is almost like mirrored where you're starting with this very Web3 concept of like a public private key pair. And so I'm a big fan of, you know, your podcast naming, but you're basically starting with a key pair and then you go from there to like basically storing private data. So if you have a key pair, you can encrypt data and you can sign data and you can keep it private and authenticate it. And that also opens up all these other possibility, it mean, possibilities. So it means you can use things like ENS for contacting people. You can use crypto signatures to verify and trust people's identity. You can use decentralized storage because you have end-to-end encryption. And so it's basically, you can reimagine every layer from identity to authentication to storage because you're building things in this Web3 first model. So yeah, that's how we think about it. I want to dive into each of those pieces as we go along, but maybe like a little more fundamental because Web3 is a very amorphous term. And I've seen you write a little bit about this. I think your take on it both felt more intuitively true and also perhaps different from a lot of the other Web3 opinions that are out there right now, where they tend to be very centric around, well, this enables everyone to be a creator and own their their content or better artist royalty sharing, which never felt applicable to me. Like I, I don't have a creator income. I'm not a very good artist, as my kids will tell you. Um, so, so maybe talk to me a little bit about the, like, when you say web three, what does that mean at Skiff? Yeah, I think we, instead of having a super overarching definition, we see it along a few axes. I think one is privacy. That's fundamental where so much of the history of everything cryptocurrencies and everything web three is based on pseudo anonymity, total anonymity and using e pairs identity. So I think privacy is one access. I think the other that we really care about is data ownership. And I think from there, that's where we see some of this monetization coming from, like the people who talk about monetizing the things you produce. But I feel like more fundamentally, like data ownership is where that comes from. And so that means like, you know, public keys, private keys, owning your own tokens or NFTs or other things, or basically just like owning your own data via your private keys. And that's how we try and express that inside Skiff. I think the privacy piece here is is one that's maybe a little bit overlooked on on the internet, particularly if you're kind of more of a casual user of a, a service like Google Docs, where it's like, oh, I you know, in my browser toolbar, I see the little lock icon, so therefore, you know, it's encrypted, I'm secure. I think probably a small percentage of those people understand that's encrypted from their browser into Google servers. Your proposition with Skiff is entirely different, right? Like there is no model in which the data that resides on on the platform you provide, does the company have access to, right? It's always in control of the user and those they've specifically chosen to collaborate with, right? Exactly. So Skiff never has access to anything that you upload, any files that you share, any documents you write, you know, any messages you send. And we don't really ever want access either because it's your data and tech companies already in the world, I think, know too much about every single person. That's the ideological side. But I think on what you're saying, you're right. It's hard to convince people and teach the world what end-to-end encryption is, even though we see actually, we see WhatsApp trying to do that. We see Signal trying to do that. We see a kind of broader consumer-based learning about these more technical topics. But I think what does make more sense to people is that data ownership aspect, where people are so hyper-aware in the Web3 space of, you know, having their wallets drained or their funds drained that they are really sensitive about even giving out like a wallet address or a public key because that even reveals information about you. So I think the privacy angle is intuitive, but you're right that sometimes it has this crisscross with really technical topics that are a lot more nuanced. 
Exactly. Like I, I was trying to think through the number of companies that lead with this end-to-end encrypted message. And I landed on the ones you just enumerated, like WhatsApp and Signal. You know, maybe you hear it in the iMessage context sometimes, but it's not a broadly marketed term. And it seems like you all are leading with it, which is pretty interesting. You were really the first document collaboration platform to offer that, right? That's where Skiff started was maybe a poor analogy, but like a re-implementation of Google Docs featuring end-to-end encryption. How did you land on that as an idea? Like what really led you to to wanting to build something like that and, and believing there was a market need for, for that? Yeah, that's also an interesting journey. So I think I had worked on all this human safety stuff and operating systems and was personally very privacy leaning. It takes to make something private and how the defaults are not really built to be that way. I was there ideologically. I had also spent a lot of time just working on more of the softer side of security. So doing research and helping write papers. Actually, that was just as hard or even harder, but uh, a little less writing code. So I spent time in Asia and in Eastern Europe and all these places where there's a bit more of a developed tech privacy culture among people who work in that space. So that became a big part of what I worked on. And eventually I just started working on Skiff in my free time. I liked with Jason, CEO and designer and co-founder. Jason has a whole personal background in that. And just, we actually helped plan a hackathon together five or six years ago. So from there, we started building out this whole kind of end-to-end encrypted collaboration platform for documents. And, you know, that was a natural transition to drive. And I think we just start to find ways that all these Web3 features just add value to users, like using an existing crypto identity, like a wallet and storage. To me, when Skiff went from interesting to like, oh, this is really novel and unique, because I was pitching my own vision for where does crypto go from here. And I was like, hey, I think the next useful thing beyond currency or tokens is going to be identity management. And I was kind of searching for somebody who was actually like taking advantage of this this idea that we now all have. We're holding private keys. So therefore, there's like a, a definite identifier that can be used to validate somebody's personhood. And then I think I got your email that was like, hey, you can now use use your wallet to authenticate to Skiff. And I immediately went and demoed it to somebody because I was like, look, this is actually what I think is going to happen here. That to me was such an interesting idea. Did you have that plan from the beginning or was that something where like user requests started coming in or you saw a market opportunity? Like how did that develop? I think yes and no. I was an early, I don't know, I was involved very early in Filecoin and IPFS and decentralized storage. That was really compelling and, you know, was a MetaMask user for a long time. I think what you're saying was really perfect. Like it's almost this much better, it's it's this mirrored analog of like what's the next generation of OAuth and SSO and really simple login going to look like. And so using it someone's existing identity is great. It solves this whole like PGP nest of people distributing keys themselves. They have, you know, ENS and Unstoppable and all these other aliases. So we love that. Honestly, the adoption I think was really good pressure too. So when cryptos went from few million users to tens of millions of monthly active users, that was like, well, this would be awesome, I think, to just give people access to. And I don't know, curious where you see this going on some of the security side too, because it's totally possible that like the default web browsers and the default phone browsers will have crypto integrated inside of them in the next whatever years. And so we're seeing a lot of money and time spent on that. And in that world, it's also just really useful where like, you know, every Brave user has Brave Wallet and every Solana phone user might have a Solana wallet. So all that stuff, I think, um, would just make it easier to use our products. I was making a bunch of predictions around the turn of the year, so eight months ago or so, 
that you know 2022 would be the year of the wallet and we saw a bunch of new wallets launch early in the year you know some folks i think a new a new layer one blockchain launched just last week and announced funding the odyssey d wallet team specifically around building like a better wallet experience because i think the wallet experience is still super broken and clunky like no no offense to friends over consensus building on metamask but like if you just look at all of the phishing uh hack attempts that are or and successful ones that are happening like there's clearly a ux gap around when you click yes do something in the wallet and understanding what you're actually doing and so the wallets are going to have to improve. I think there's a huge room for innovation and improvement there. And one direction that could potentially go is you see, you know, Google with Android and Apple on the iPhone build in, you know, they both already have a wallet feature adding a crypto element to that. That would be like a super obvious thing, I think. And then all of a sudden you've got couple billion people on the planet suddenly have a crypto native identity, right? Potentially. Beyond wallets too, right? So you didn't stop at the wallet level. You're also using IPFS. I think it's optional, right? Like I can kind of choose if I want IPFS or not uh, for the file storage layer underneath the document collaboration. Like that's a pretty novel thing too. I don't see a lot of people building on IPFS beyond like DeFi front ends, right? It's an interesting question. And I don't know, I have some thoughts on the whole fraud and phishing side too. I'd say definitely. On the IPFS question, that's another, I think, pretty value aligned part of the product where if you can do end-to-end encryption, you can now store your data in other places where it's still end-to-end encrypted so no one has access to it, but you may just not want it on a cloud server or something. You can just put it on this decentralized network that is more portable, it's more censorship resistant, et cetera. So there's definitely times where users want that and tens of thousands of people enable that inside our product. So people definitely connect with that. I think on the flip side, you know, you're also right that all these problems of identity and you know accounts and all this stuff have not been solved in a really definitive way quite yet. And so I don't know whether the optimal solution is to see wallets in our operating system. I think that's really promising in many ways. Like we've seen huge developments on like Fido, you know, using YubiKeys and fingerprint authentication and that stuff. So I'm optimistic that things may eventually evolve more into the hardware level, but it's also true that the product side that we work on is also really immature. And I don't know, you probably hear the most dramatic stories of people losing their wallets and getting fished and wallets drained and that stuff. So, you know, once your identity is attached to that, like, you know, finances in the, are the worst. You probably hear about people you lose the dollars, but your email address and your files and your storage on top of that, it's just a, you know, painful cherry on top. So I think we also think about ways that we can integrate like 2FA and other things that maybe wallets don't have at such a level yet. I think that's totally the right approach. And and I also wouldn't say that necessarily all the problems that we see today across the crypto wallet landscape get solved by Google or Apple. Like there's legitimate hard problems there in terms of parsing the the effect of, you know, authorizing a smart contract or even as we saw last week, I don't know if you were following, but there was somebody who was doing a good job exploiting the fact that MetaMask will allow you to sign a hash that's open-ended in nature. As opposed to signing an explicit action, you're sort of giving someone almost proxy rights to later then authorize other contracts that can do things like spend tokens in your wallet. Quite a few people are reporting getting fished by that type of attack. So there's definite technical complexity there that I'm looking forward to 
to someone solving for sure, whether that comes out of big tech or, or small tech, I TBD, right? Well, I, I definitely hope it's the crypto teams that figure that out. Me too. I'm definitely keeping a close eye on all the stuff happening in, in some of the exciting wallet projects. Question, like as you think about your user base, obviously I think there's a natural affinity to the people who are already deep in crypto, like, like yourself, right? Like you added wallet sign on because you were already a MetaMask user. So the, the feature probably seemed in some ways obvious as you were describing. You know, as you're thinking about building the company, where do you see your user base coming from? And how do you think about the ideal customers for Skiff today? Yeah, I think you put it very directly, which is I would say we have strong roots in privacy. That's the biggest part of our value system and culture and a lot of what drives the things we do inside crypto as well. But I also think we have almost this Venn diagram of users from privacy to crypto and a huge intersection of crypto people who understand privacy and privacy people who understand crypto. And I think that makes it kind of interesting because we're building a product that that entire set of users understands. Email is super intuitive. Everyone understands that. You know, same with generally docs and file storage. But I'd also say that when possible, we try and tune the experience to people depending on how they come to the product. So if you have MetaMask, you know, you'll see that as one of the default login options. If you don't, you won't see it. And so I think that's where we keep a lot of the kind of fundamental product experience similar, but we also try and tune it to, you know, the crypto collaborations and add-ons that we do. So I think actually the people who have, you know, the crypto elements, they can connect their wallets, get new aliases, they can try out decentralized storage, but you can kind of deliver on those core privacy principles if you're just a, you know, non-crypto user as well. Makes total sense, Andrew. I really like that framing of you know the the privacy centric user, the crypto centric user. If you're into both, Skiff delivers some amazing power features. If you're if you're one or the other, though, it's still a really 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 useful product. I'm curious as you think about you know individual consumer user, if I can use that terminology, relative to kind of the corporate or or enterprise buyer. You know, does it make sense for a company like Chainalysis, 800 people, to be looking at Skiff as a a Web3 native alternative to our current Google Docs solution? Like, would you advise that if if we were having like a sales conversation with your team right now, or is that is that maybe a future ambition? Yeah, I'd say that's definitely the direction we're going. And today we have customers from, you know, one person consumers to five person teams to hundred person teams using Skiff. So we're not at the 800 person company scale yet, but definitely at the much larger team and experience for people to work together and collaborate. It's almost when you think about the product, you can break it down into that funnel as well, where to build a good 800 person product, the way we think about it is you kind of have to still build a good five person product and one person product especially for email and for collaboration and for file storage and sharing, where a lot of the use case is still single player, you know, taking notes, uploading a file, sharing a file, sharing a link, writing an email, all that stuff. So we're getting there and actually in about a month, we're doing a big re-architecture, we're, we're releasing a big re-architecture, which should make Skiff a lot more usable for larger teams. Um, and so that's just releasing a lot more of the team management stuff, the things that'll make it simpler for companies to use as a group and also to break down into smaller teams. Just one note, I think I'm super excited about the individual use case. You know, we've seen Signal Messenger grow to 120 or more million monthly active users. So people are getting educated on these topics. You know, private search has never been bigger. And so I'm excited about that consumer user base. But I think for our products and work in collaboration, we're definitely going in that team direction. I'm also curious, what do you think about, how do you think about that too? Because I feel like I'm sure so much of your business is, you know, coming from 
companies as big or larger or a little smaller than you, but also there's so much on a consumer level that people can do to protect the way they work in Web3. I think there's a big balance of features that you have to build depending on which direction that you want to go. So the there's no there's certainly no right answer. I wasn't biasing one way or the other. I was just trying to decide if I need to get my uh, VP of business systems to, to give you all a call. Shifting gears maybe a little bit to a different topic, and I'm not trying to be controversial, but I, I think it's one that we should definitely hit on is there's a lot of discussion happening around privacy. Is it you know, a, a fundamental right of the internet or is there, you know, a bar to be cleared uh, where, you know, average individual maybe has a right to privacy, but there's limitations on that. And we see this debate kind of raging in, in different sectors within obviously the U.S., but internationally, there's even more complexity there. I'm on what I would assume would be your side of the fence on this, which is like, yes, we, we need to have a right to privacy secure communication is important but i think we also have to respond to the critics a little bit on what happens if the bad guys are using the tool to do bad things how do you think about that philosophically or maybe even what what some of your responses because i'm sure you've gotten challenged on this before by other folks i think pragmatically of course i'm ideologically far on the side of you know we have privacy as a right and it's almost people's responsibility to uphold that and work on that like ours but I think pragmatically, I feel increasingly confident about that right as well. Honestly, it's good news that WhatsApp, the most used product in the world probably with over 2 billion people, is end-to-end encrypted. That we see messaging products, iMessage, Facebook Messenger kind of going in that direction, Telegram, Secret Chats. We see end-to-end, you know, and Signal, of course, pioneering a lot of the technology here. I think we see a lot of end-to-end encryption and privacy being built into the products that everyone uses partly because of all the notorious issues with spyware and people's data being leaked, but also partly because I think, you know, a few people and companies made, I think, really ethical and good decisions and also now have hopefully the money and the legal resources to back that up. So I think that's overall a good thing. Finally, I think at a personal level, we're not, I would say, absolutists in an extreme way where we would say like total anonymity, total privacy and you know, no data will exist forever. And so I think, you know, and everything should be ephemeral or destroyed. I think the way that I find really intuitive to talk to friends or people who aren't as deep into end-to-end encryption is just some of the physical world analogies. And Apple actually had an advertising campaign about this. Like you wouldn't expect anyone, even law enforcement, to have like persistent, you know, access to your house. And so you would never really want that for any sort of private company. It's like you're hiring someone to get your you know, curtains repaired and they get, you know, access to your everything in your house forever. And so I think in the digital world where the stakes are so much higher, like your identity is in your inbox or in your messaging apps, a lot of those same analogies, I think, apply. So that's what I find to be the you know, simplest, most intuitive thing for people to understand if you come with some sort of expectation of privacy in the physical world. And so that's the philosophy. How does it then play out into the actual product implementation? Because I, I imagine you've got lots of sticky decisions to make. Like obviously you have you have investors, uh, they're looking for you to build legitimate and presumably high growth, like very successful business. The users that you're trying to attract, I would imagine you want to look like that, like people who are using this because philosophically they're aligned or they have a an actual need for privacy 
but one that is largely legitimate in purpose. Like you're not trying to build a tool for criminals to keep secrets any more than Facebook is with WhatsApp or Apple is with their platform. Like how does this translate into the day-to-day -day product development? There are two notable differences on how we do things that are advantages in certain ways and also just tougher in others. One is just things can take longer when you're building securely from the ground up and with end-to-end -end encryption and privacy in mind. We have less, much less data about what we want to do from our users. We have no idea where you click on the screen inside our product and we don't really want that information. And also, like if your data is end-to-end -end encrypted, you just kind of need a much more careful engineering process. You know, we get audited frequently once to twice a year. We think about in every kind of pull request that changes the data model, what are the risks, what are the you know, pros and cons, and also just a lot of fundamental web security stuff that we need to be really proactive about. So that's, that's one piece. The other piece that we think about is just making the product and where we've, I don't want to say struggled, but where it's really hard, just building a really good product is extremely tough. You know, we use our email apps for hours every day. You expect certain things inside whatever Compose window you use. Probably everyone who's listening has tried out Outlook or Gmail or Apple. And so you expect the bullet points to function in a certain way. For whatever Notes app, you expect the tabbing and the highlighting and the selecting and the indenting to all be, you know, have certain idioms and certain practices. And so I think that's where there's this almost like head-bangingly difficult long tail of things where it's just you expect extreme responsiveness across tens of hours of usage. And so, you know, when you're spending a lot more time on just the fundamental architecture of a product, you then start to have this other set of product features that just take a while to match. And so I think we've, we focus so much on usability and design and people who come back to Skiff always mention that. But it's also, I think, where we found a lot of difficulty. So I'd say some a lot, you know, on the security side makes things tough and we really scrutinize. But I think there's a lot of those inescapable product challenges that anyone who's worked on a consumer product will realize. That's such a good answer. And I think there's an entire generation of product teams who have grown up with real-time intelligence inside of the product, right? This was like the shift from packaged software that you would build and then customers would buy DVDs or CDs of your product to like, oh no, we're running as a service. Like we can see real time what every user's doing. And then a whole generation of analytics tools came on top of that. So you're not only getting individual user, but aggregate user behavior detail that informed uh, you know, basically the last 10 years of product development. It's amazing to me to think about you having to build absent that information. Like that, that's gotta be a huge challenge, right? Yeah, I'd say we, we do have some general information. Like, you know, for users who, I don't know, like when we're receiving more emails, it's generally good. And we know like the number of people who receive emails every day and that kind of stuff. And so it's really important for that to keep going up and going up rapidly. But like, do we know that, uh, you know, if we reposition this button on the screen, is that going to lead to, you know, an A-B test of conversion? We don't right now. Do I think eventually we could build the infrastructure to do that privately? A hundred percent. But like the default products in that space that are really, really good, we just don't want to integrate with like our product experience because it's actually creepy. Like I've seen the demos and stuff and you're seeing like the heat maps and like people's user journeys and sessions. And I totally get how that's invaluable information. But I think with some basic, like more fundamental metrics, we can still get pretty far. And one other note is we have just a really strong design culture. Like Jason, our CTO, is a designer. You know, we work with some great growth advisors, people from Twitter and from Dropbox and Webflow and all around the tech industry who also just advise and consult on that. And so you learn about, 
you know, this whole new industry in collaboration and communication, like how desktop app works, how templates work, how sharing and onboarding and referrals and credits, all the tricks that have also been developed through those metric systems, you know, they're also somewhat of a playbook. Yeah, definitely an area where our product team is starting to mature a bit, right? It, our audience has been so far, you know, very much B2B focused. We've got some exciting things coming later this year that lead us more into the the self-service space. So too early for me to talk about them, but it's right in this world, which is why your comment about not having, you know, all of the traditional instrumentation definitely stuck with me. I'm curious as a, you know, a kind of a closing question, like what's on the horizon that, that you can share with us? What can we expect in the next uh, payload of big features coming out of Skip? That's a great question. I, I'd say I have two thoughts on that. One is a lot more utility out of the products we build in the Web3 space. So thinking about all the groups we can collaborate with. And so, you know, Ian, if you have ideas on the just making the Web3 user experience much more safe and secure and trustworthy, that's something we are really investing in and how you can get a lot more information through our product. So, you know, we've basically started to integrate, you know, MetaMask and Brave Wallet and Unstoppable and now just released actually a Kepler Wallet integration today. They're all based on the same concept of like, you know, using attestation and signatures. And so how can you now make that experience even richer? The other is just making our products much better on the product side. Faster performance and responsiveness and new product additions and all that stuff. That all sounds like exciting stuff. I'm curious, like you're obviously deep in the crypto ecosystem. What other projects out there are getting you really excited right now? Like what's the stuff you're following and kind of like waiting for the, the next next drop of a, or release? Unsurprisingly, I skew much more towards infrastructure and developer projects than I don't know, crypto goods and consumer sales and stuff. Actually, we are consumer products, so that's a bit ironic. But the stuff that I really like is adding more utility to wallets. So I think we see just like the wallet partnership, the wallet connection infrastructure and ecosystem, that stuff exploding. So whether it's, I mentioned like hardware and mobile phones, hardware wallets, you know, that getting integrated into web standards and to new APIs and new devices and new infrastructure. I think is really exciting. And part of that, I actually think in a, you know, quote unquote, like crypto bear market, when people aren't maybe buying as much financially, I think people will turn to a lot of these engagement metrics and like usage metrics. Like it's still so important for people to be using their wallet every day. They've already got it in, you know, in their browser on their phone. So how can they build it into new products and get more utility out of it? And I hope like, of course, I'm basically pitching a lot of the stuff we work on, but uh, I think that's really good for people. I love it. Said like a true founder, everything comes back to the thing you're working on. Andrew, this is a super fun conversation. Loved loved getting your perspective. If we will link to the Skip platform and, and some content in the show notes about all the products that, uh, that you all are working on. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly, so if you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. We've achieved a huge milestone with this episode of Public Key. You're listening to our 20th edition, and we recently passed over 11,000 listener downloads. I'm extremely thankful for our listeners from around the world who helped to build our audience by sharing our content across your networks. The enthusiasm we've seen since launching the podcast means that we're going to keep going for at least another 20 episodes. And I realize this success is only possible thanks to our knowledgeable guests and the amazing team behind the scenes who make learning about crypto, compliance, and our technology ecosystem so exciting. One request, 
Do you know someone who would make a great guest on the next podcast? Then do me a favor and leave a review with your suggestions. Last thing before you go, if you're listening to this podcast, then you probably like learning about crypto. Have you signed up for your Chainalysis Academy account yet? If not, grab the link in the show notes and get your free account and start your learning journey today.